Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe, a podcast on ideas, politics and all things European, European Liberal Forum project. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I really hope that you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Liberal Europe. Uh, today we are going to discuss how to fight and defeat populists in electoral campaigns. And I have a very proper guest today, Aran Chaudhary, uh, who is a creative director of Social Changes and the former creative director of Bernie Sanders, presidential campaign and an official videographer at the White House and the Obama presidency. Aran, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. It all sounds it sounds like I've done something when you say it all like that. Thank you. Well, you've done many things I haven't mentioned yet, but we might get to it later. Um, I wanted to start, so there are many issues I wanted to, to, to talk about today. Uh, it's, a, it's a very broad topic and, and you have a very vast knowledge. But I want to start with Argentina when we have this Sunday, November 19th, the presidential, the second round of presidential elections, a standoff, a standoff between the Sergio Massa, a Peronist, and versus Javier Milei, who is a right-wing libertarian. And, you know, from the outside, it might be a little bit surprising that actually the the economic minister of the party, which has such abysmal records in economic policy with more than 100% of uh, inflation, it's not just uh, you know, just having a chance, uh, but actually it's a favorite of these elections, perhaps because the, his opponent, Mr. Millet, is quite uh, a radical uh, who is uh, promising to abolish um, central bank, among the other things, and dollarize uh, economy. So can you tell us a bit more about this campaign, these characters, and which issues you think will be decisive? And of course, who's going to win this Sunday? Absolutely. Uh, and I actually think that the latest round of, of polling from pretty respectable pollers uh, has Malay, who is our kind of, you know, crypto libertarian uh, heartthrob on the, on the, the far, far right uh, ahead a little bit, uh, which I don't mind. Uh, because I think what you want that final poll to say is you're three points behind. That's actually the maximalist, <laughs> most motivated uh, your people can be. Uh, and so I do think that Masa the economic minister has a good shot. I think he's actually run a good campaign. Usually, whenever we have these conversations about one of these tough elections, I will begin by running down the campaign of, of whatever person is running on our side, you know, as somebody who is a bit of a know-it-all and a loudmouth. Uh, but I think Moss has run a good campaign. He's separated his policies and what he wants to do uh, from Kirchner, from kind of the, the government record. But more importantly, I think, and it's kind of the wild card in this spot, and it's what makes it different from an election in a place like Poland or, or, or in the U.S. that we will have, is that Peronism still has, uh, is still a mass party, still has mass appeal in, into the heartland of Argentina, into really people who vote and really people who matter. And so people worrying about losing the, what they have today, which is the most powerful motivator in politics, loss aversion, it's can I trust the important subsidies in my life, educational, transportation, to a guy who, and you were very generous in your description of what he wants to do. I mean, dollarization is the beginning. He would like to legalize the selling of human organs in markets. He's been confronted on this multiple times, and he keeps saying yes. So, I mean, he really, he really is a special character. He also, I think, has run into some headwinds culturally uh, and that he has misunderstood the Argentine people. They are hungry for change, and that's why this sort of crazy man Malay is in the game at all. People are very hungry for change. As you say, the 
that there is an abysmal record. Inflation is rampant. You know, we complain about it in Europe and in North America, but there it's hundreds of percents and nobody knows what things cost. And all of a sudden there's a good deal at a hotel on currency and everyone goes there. Like it's, you know, it's a miserable gray economy experience. Um, but the, but he has borrowed some tactics from Bolsonaro and from America that I think people think play everywhere, especially around liberalization of guns. Uh, and I think you saw a little bit of this with Confederacy in Poland as well. So uh, thinking uh, that people are into this, but actually people really are scared of gun violence when they look at America and they see the levels of gun violence and they see especially the school shootings and these very emotionally uh, horrible, violent incidents, they react strongly to it. Uh, so anyway, in the run-up, we're seeing kind of everyone's closing arguments. Uh, we're seeing a poor debate performance from Malay and a good one by Massa in the last run-up. I feel like it's going to be close, but uh, the forces of democracy are going to prevail in this one. Right. It's I think it's, you know, uh, when you look at the countries which are relatively distant from yours, and uh, sometimes you can... Even if you know very little, uh, it seems that you can observe things with a more distant manner and maybe more structurally. So I'm thinking, how do you, being, well, supporting Sanders in 2016, seeing Trump actually clenching against all odds and falls, the final victory, when do you think, and we had the the, the Bolsonaro who actually lost the, the, the second elections, uh, now we have Millet who, who, who might actually lose. When do you think it's, the, because we see this radicals getting traction everywhere. It's much, I think, easier than ever for the radical, maybe since 19th century, for the radical candidate to to be a serious challenger to the mainstream. But at the same time, there are issues where it's a, it's too much for them to win or, or to hold to presidency or, or to power. How do, do you have a sort of like a general uh, view on this? Um, when it is too much, when it's too much Trump, or, is there, it, or maybe it's, it's very much depends on the local context and there is not like a general rule for the populists to, to win and to lose. I'm going to give you a long answer to this, uh, and I don't want you to be annoyed by that. <laughs> but I, I think the answer to this has something to do with how Americans sell cars, uh, which is in three ways, and you have three levels of messaging. And the first level of messaging is brand identity, right? It's an eagle in a desert. Do I feel like a Ford, right? It's, you know, it's, it's a feeling. <laughs> then it's, uh, do you need a minivan? It's back to school. This is what it costs. It's so big, you can fit 12 kids in it. And then at the end, it's a clown on the street waving a circle, being like, come into the store. And we think, who would come into the store based on that? But it's just to get you across the threshold. Once you're in the store, I know that you want a minivan because you need it. And I know you want a Ford because you feel it. The election is just the clown part, right? The real communications on the things that people care about and on building community around politics, around issues, happens at different stages of the game. It should happen when it's not an election. And so sometimes we think, who could vote for Trump? Who could vote for Bolsonaro? Who can vote for these crazy people? And it's not that they're voting for that. It's that that's just, you know, it's just that the carnival barking is what gets you in the door and moves you in. So when these guys are too much, and I say guys because it really does seem to be a gendered experience, uh, when, these, when these guys are too much, it's not necessarily because of what they're selling, because the people who are buying don't even necessarily believe what they're selling. What they're buying is, is change uh, and in the same way that sometimes 
I don't want to infantilize people, right? But it's sort of a good attention, bad attention situation. And people who feel frustrated by not being allowed to participate in politics because they feel like elites look down on them or there's smoke-filled rooms where candidates are decided. Because they can't participate in the game on the field, they know the best thing they can do is get naked and run across it and stop the way that the game is being played. And this is somehow we react to these things with reason instead of with emotion. And it's people want to participate. I think what we see in all of these elections on all sides is that parties don't really have control of their membership. They don't even have control sometimes of their elected officials, but they don't have control of their membership in the way that they used to. And so you see people very happily moving from one party to another and, you know, and everyone kind of clutches, you know, their pearls and says, oh, we don't understand. And the polls are always wrong and the electorate. And it's just because people are making decisions now in a more rapid way based on things uh, that are coming in at them. So, yes, it is local, but I think there are global trends in this uh, that we see. And it matters what happens in these elections election by election matters to the next one, right? There's no Trump without Brexit in my mind, 100%. Well, I mean, that's that's quite, I mean, I don't know to what extent the you know, elections in Argentina or Poland can send any sort of message. I think it's, well, it's not the Brexit, uh, obviously, or but it's uh, the, the defeat in one place is at least hopefully um, getting the reinforcement for the democratic forces elsewhere, especially regionally. Um, and I think, as you said, it is connected. So Bolsonaro losing perhaps also means that Millet might not have a chance. But I wanted to ask you a very different question, to which I think I expect the answer might be also slightly longer than my question. What is it like to be a filmmaker to the president? <laughs> oh, that is, that is, that's a different question, but also, yeah, but also a, a, an interesting one, I think. It, it was... I think people think of being filmmaker to the president as being kind of like a fly on the wall uh, to sort of historical moments, not remembering that when you're the guy with the camera, you are like an 800-pound gorilla in every room, you know? <laughs> Everyone is very, very aware that there's a person with the camera there and they know what you're doing. Uh, and so uh, I think being filmmaker to a president is an incredibly difficult proposition and now I want to cast it differently in saying being videographer to Barack Obama was the only way that someone like me could do it. It would be impossible with, I think, with most presidents. You had in Barack Obama a unique individual who was mm. so much the same on and off screen that you had important, powerful people allowing me to film him in unguarded moments. When I think uh, your uh, listeners will be interested to, un to know Every single thing that I recorded when I was at the White House in service of the president is not only preserved by law, but is demandable by the public, uh, uh, I think, starting next year, even. It, you know, if, you're, if you want to see a particular trip on Air Force One and I have footage of it, you just have to request from the library the date uh, and vaguely the time, and they will just deliver it to you. Uh, so it is a risky proposition uh, because there is so much baked in transparency in the law post Richard Nixon, let's just say, uh, to, to what happens at the White House. You can't erase anything. I had someone go, I didn't change the names of my files. My files, as delivered to the U.S. archives, are in the factory camera language, every single shot that was ever taken on that camera, because anything that's missing, it's actually, you know, against the law. So uh, so it's an interesting thing and a risky proposition. And in the end of the day, 
you are you feel like you're taking b-roll for this incredibly long documentary about this person uh, <laughs> that you don't know will ever get made but it was an incredibly interesting experience well it's uh you made it sound like it's 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 you know it's interesting job of of, of filming, but uh, well, I'm very curious if if the issue of I think there was some robot dance of Obama or robot voice <laughs> that that he did, which I think never were, went out. So I'm I'm curious if we can demand this one as well. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. In fact, okay. I think you should. And <laughs> well, this, is stuff, this is the reason, right? The things that will the things that you'll find out about Obama when you're digging in on the archives and of the work we did together, is this message of the work that I put out to the public. You know, there uh, there are very few unguarded funny moments I didn't put out. I think we did not put out the robot voice. Uh, okay. You know, but only because it wasn't captured. Uh, the kinds of uh, insights that people got into his personality through these real little moments, him and Michelle. I can remember one where uh, where uh, Michelle's holding a crying baby and then Obama like picks it up and it stops crying and Michelle's genuinely mad about it, right? She's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? She's like, that's an annoying thing. Yeah. Uh, and these <laughs> moments that are imperfect are actually what helped the Obama image be so important, be so palatable. Literally the worst thing about the guy is that he was, you know, that he had a, a nicotine habit and was like, you know, chewing the gum to try to kick smoking. Uh, and so these are the kinds of, there's nothing rough around the edges in that this was a very safe project. I do think it's why you don't see a Donald Trump or even a Joe Biden having a, a videographer with the same kind of access. We basically, from Obama himself, Pete Souza and I had just one rule which was uh, you can do whatever you want. You know, <laughs> obviously you have to check in with the communications people, the national security people. Um, you can do anything you want as long as it doesn't involve the girls. And if it involves the girls, if it's an official event, it's fine, right? If they're horsing around backstage in an official event, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's our lives. So that's cool. But if you just sort of stumble on them playing with the dog in the Rose Garden one night, like that's their house and that's their dog. And like, it's not fair game. And that was the only rule. And he absolutely uh, abided by his half, only occasionally reminding us, you know, I'm about to go to the bathroom, so please don't follow me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious to what extent do you think that it was uh, a superstar who actually became a president, I mean, in terms of his conduct and uh, sort of like the, well, in the way that you, you see that, you know, movie stars conduct themselves, a celebrity. And... And very natural with the camera and and speaking to people. And to what extent do you think it's sort of the power speaks through the person? And to what extent it is maybe even necessary for the president to have certain features, which if they don't have, they 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 are much less equipped to to be in power. This last thing you just said is, I think, like the sort of I don't know the guilty my guilty tragedy of it in a way. Uh, I mean, to start with the beginning of your question, I think Barack Obama is uniquely talented uh, in this way and that he, you know, is very confident in who he is and what he wants to say. And because of that confidence, he doesn't worry about the nitpicking like, oh, where is a run in the camera or, you know, what's that edit going to look like? He can trust people just to get it done, which gives everything, you know, a much more. I don't know, professional kind of feel because you actually, you know, he's confident enough in who he is that I'm allowed to be confident in who I am as a filmmaker making a film for him, which is a very, which is a, uh, you know, a very rare thing in politics. 
But the fact that he's good at that is just an idiosyncratic thing. And I do worry that post-Obama presidency where, you know, the kind of projects we did together have sort of set a benchmark where you need to be good on YouTube to be the president of the United States. Is every person who's good on YouTube a great president? Like, no, it has nothing. One has nothing to do with the other seemingly in the end, right? Being able to show your best authentic self. Donald Trump shows his best authentic self about 12 times a day. And we're all equally horrified each time that it, that it happens. Uh, and so I do think that Barack Obama's unique talents and this kind of effortless, transparent, authenticity style of leadership uh, has set a kind of precedent in how Democratic campaigns are run that can't always match the personalities of the candidates running. You know, people weren't sure Bernie Sanders would have a great personality for YouTube. But it turned out that he very much did. Hillary Clinton has never kind of like conquered that. Doesn't mean she would have been a terrible president. I'm not sure that that would be the reason because she's bad on YouTube. You know, that doesn't seem fair. Um, so, yeah, we're now running in a very what's going to be a very close election. And folks like me who are sort of very uh, communications forward and how and how we're looking at it. I look at it as a race that Joe Biden is very far behind in because he will not be able to do the things an online video that Donald Trump will do on a, you know, daily, multi-daily basis. Mm. So uh, do you think that after all, it is this authenticity or even the appearance of authenticity could be decisive? I mean, I think Biden, people take him as a sort of natural guy, this, his famous gaffes and so on. But it seems that, I don't know if it's, if it's the age or if it's something else that, it, in, in the conditions that I think now in the US, it will be maybe not guaranteed, but kind of confidence to win, I think, the sec the, the re-election, especially against a candidate so radical as, as Donald Trump. What, why do you think it's the case that, that he's trailing behind the Trump, who's been, you know, who, who might end up in jail be before actually becoming a president? I think there's a few reasons uh, that, that, that Biden is struggling a bit. And we've seen that Democratic policy, and in fact, progressive democratic policy, whether it be about abortion or about health care or about any other number of issues, is quite popular with the American electorate. Uh, and in the midterms and in the special elections and just in Virginia last week, we see, and Ohio, my gosh, Ohio, you know, uh, we see over and over again Democrats overperforming and doing very, very well, especially against their more radical uh, opponents, which at the same, and the polls have been showing that. And at the same time, they show Joe Biden sinking lower and lower. And so at some point, it does become an idiosyncratic problem where it is Joe Biden's problem. I do think that part of that is, um, you know, image-based, right? He, he does uh, struggle uh, in, in public, just to be frank. Like, I feel like we're having a frank discussion about it. I think sometimes folks from across the pond aren't sure how Americans perceive it, but he does not appear to be as quote unquote strong, you know, as Donald Trump, who was only a few years uh, younger than him and is also like one of the least healthy people one can imagine. But it, it is a presentation issue. It's sort of like your parents. Um, you know, I'm at that age where my parents are changing from being old people to being elderly people. Uh, and you don't exactly know when it happens, but it's a but it's a specific feeling. And I think America's having that feeling, and that's definitely depressing things. It's also policy issues. And I think this is important because one of the things fueling 
Democratic wins, but hurting Joe Biden is that uh, people are leaving him first before the party. But you see young people, people of color, uh, people from immigrant communities, people you would never think would entertain voting for Donald Trump, starting to flirt with voting for Donald Trump. And as someone who watched this happen with Confederacja in Poland, I think you can understand how it's not necessarily about these policies. They're not buying the radical policies. It's just they feel maybe disrespected on an issue. They feel like someone hasn't delivered on an issue. And now they're open to anyone who is offering change. Uh, and I think this is the real thing, the real danger. Uh, and what you were, this even ties into a question you asked before with all of these elections and why they become harder and why these radical guys are still in it is that oftentimes the, the pro democratic government is then failing to deliver on basic social services for people, on the things that they expect. Uh, and Joe Biden, you know, there are in some respects, whether it be on the student loans fiasco for young people, and now, very frankly speaking, on his response to Gaza, is leaving a lot of young people's concerns and other communities' concerns behind, and they're not going to forgive him for it that quickly. Just quickly before we move to Europe and then to close the podcast, if, if, you were the, if you were running Biden's campaign, what would you do in this coming year? Or you need to change the candidates? I mean, now we're having a tough conversation and it's becoming where it would sort of be a hard thing to change the candidate because it sort of just makes everything look like a disaster a bit. But I, I do think changing the candidate, you know, would make sense. Like there, there are, and there are just certain things that like Joe Biden is an authentic guy. And there are things he's not going to change his mind on. And unfortunately, some of those things just don't line up with the electorate where there would be lots of free votes available. I would say legalizing marijuana is a sort of seemingly frivolous, yeah. but very obvious one, right? Most people agree with this. There's lots of votes exactly in the communities I just said are abandoning him in droves, right? But this is just something that Uncle Joe is not going to be able to do because it's what he actually believes. You know, when it comes to sort of his neo neoliberal votes against some union things and now his embracing of the union movement, I think he was never an ideologue on this, right? It was the 90s. It was a different time. It was Bill Clinton. Yeah, we all thought this was a different way. But he remembers a time when unions were important and he's willing to embrace that. But there are just some issues that he's not going to be willing to change on. And so you do need a different candidate to embrace those things. But saying that that's impossible I think he needs to run as vigorous a campaign uh, as he can. Uh, and I think he needs to think outside the box about what that campaign would look like. And I would look to the past. You know, any kind of future thinking endeavor has to be soaked in a bit of nostalgia. We have a false notion in our own history about what the uh, what the front porch campaign means. We think it's this lazy thing where, you know, one president was on a train everywhere. I think it was Garfield. I don't remember. Uh, and uh, Harrison, I think maybe was the other one, was, you know, on his front porch. But that wasn't what it was. It wasn't just hanging out. It was from that front porch. There was massive, complicated policy discussions actually about every day something new, every day something different. This is the vision. This is what we stand for. Uh, I think he should do this and explain his first, second term in terms of everything he's done in the first terms in a minute-by-minute minutia way uh, and should sort of overwhelm people with the idea that there is a plan, almost in an Elizabeth Warian fashion, uh, if I can make that an adjective. Like, he <laughs> should be 
the guy who's got a plan for all of that instead of just sort of being the the good vibes guy. It sounds reasonable. And speaking of lessons, I wanted to ask you uh, as a last question uh, of the lessons from the Polish elections, especially our experience of fighting the radical uh, anti, uh, uh, well, a system, Confederacja. And is there any lessons for the European elections? Uh, I know, of course, because we have this uh, upstarts everywhere, basically in Europe, uh, far right, sometimes even farther to the right than our Confederacja or, or PSK in Poland. Do you find any theme or any sort of general progressive agenda or the way to confront those parties in the European elections that might be successful? Yes. Uh, you know, I think a thing in the end, anyone who was watching the Polish elections closely would be struck by was the, whether you call it a tsunami or a symphony, you know, the opposition, uh, you know, certainly trumpeted it. Uh, Peace certainly, you know, noticed and said that they weren't prepared for it. There was lots of content, lots of voices coming from lots of places, lots of different elements of civil society all standing up. Uh, and the impression that one got was that there was an authentic movement happening. This wasn't just a political party asking for a gig. This wasn't Donald Tusk being like, I want a second shot at the job, because that wasn't the message that was going to resonate with everyone. It was that there was just lots of voices asking for it. So I think that is a lesson that everyone should take away in a positive way. Uh, I think, though, that the, the, the lessons of the importance of specifically targeting Confederacia, of these change agents who seem exciting to broad swatches of the electorate, despite, as you say, they have these you know, increasingly radical views. I think Poland, it was a place where that was tackled correctly, where the polarization wasn't between good and evil, you know, because evil is quite attractive. The young people would vote for Darth Vader if he was on, uh, the, if he was, I would, you know, I'd be like, I don't know, Darth's got a plan. Uh, you know, and low taxes. <laughs> doesn't actually totally sound like him, but he would pretend somehow. It becomes very attractive. And like we're saying, right, the joke, there's a joke in politics right now that is between the populists and these radical right-wingers, which is that it doesn't matter what they say. All they're going to deliver is anti-establishment, anti-normality, anti-whatever. And when you can redefine the joke as a joke between all of us in society that these guys are kind of losers, that's a polarization that you can get behind. And that's where you see people start to move in this election. I think there are things that people should have done differently in Poland in the end, which was had lots of conversations with people. You know, we rely a lot on, you know, micro-targeting in this community and that community. This was not a micro-target election, right? This was a massive movement. This was, I, what was the final turnout? 75, 76? Like 74%. Yeah, 74%. This yeah. is an incredible turnout that, you know, dwarfs any other turn and, and everyone's there. And so I think of every conversation, that, not just with folks in Poland, but folks in America and folks in Argentina, who's like, let's stop targeting young men. We've lost young men. They're all Andrew Tate. They're all Jordan Peterson. Not true. They came out in Poland and they showed us that with the same messaging that was being aimed at the women, that they were responding to it. They didn't need a special different message. You know, they actually know what's right. Uh, and so I don't want us to give up on our young men. I think that's a really important lesson coming out of Poland. I know it sounds simplistic, but, you know, when you have these conversations, it feels like we have sometimes. Uh, and also to be prepared for success, 
right? This was an, an election in which everyone uh, was so depressed about it, you know, and it wasn't until all of a sudden it felt like their victory was possible that you saw this blossoming of people. We can hold those feelings with us in the off season when we're telling people the kind of car that they want, not when we're just trying to sell it, right? If we can still have those same kind of community building, positive energy about the kind of country we want going, I think that's when we'll see things like Poland happen more often. Now, I will say, uh, and I think we're not always talking about this in terms of victory in Poland, uh, that I think it was it's, it's the exception in this year, which will be very tough elections, that I think a lot of them will be fought and lost on migration issues. Uh, and we even saw peace, the ruling party turned towards uh, some of these issues at the end. And they were stopped in this by a couple of scandals. You know, that is, again, we're talking about systemic versus idiosyncratic. We can't always count on having two pretty big scandals hit the bad guys in the last week of an election. Uh, but when they do, we need to be prepared to win. That was a message from ho of hope. Uh, thank you, Iran. Uh, I, I think it's extremely important to understand that you can run uh, not that you don't have to run a status quo campaign being a Democrat, that you can challenge the populists and nationalists and be a force of change as well. And I think it's very important. And I think it's perhaps essential, especially if we talk about the young voters. Uh, Aran, thank you so much for being with us today at the Liberal Europe. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It's all for, for today from me, Leszek Jeski, Press Union for Ricardo Silvest. And next week, until two weeks, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.